Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for May 2017. I am writer hyphen seven year itch Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is Sophie Mayer, writer hyphen generally confused by the world person. Well, that is understandable. It is a very confusing world and has been over the last seven years. And hey, why did I pick that number out of the, the ether? It has been seven years since we started Hell is for Hyphenates. You know, it's not like a big round number anniversary, but I thought it was worth mentioning, you know, just up front, just get it out there. Uh, we can take a quick bow before we get into it. I think that's we're allowed that indulgence, aren't we? Well, congratulations to you. I am merely a junior hyphenate. Um, <laughs> much admiring of of what you've built up over over the last seven years. Uh, it's a solid index now. You know, getting up there with the Vatican's index. <laughs> what the number of popes versus the number of guests <laughs> and filmmakers with. <we've>, uh... <laughs> Well, yeah. you know, like, the Vatican have an index of, like, banned books and films, so I was trying to make uh, a joke about that. Right, We've right, probably right. talked about quite a lot of them. Yeah, I'm sure we've covered nearly all of them on the... Well, that, that's our next goal. That's ne- We've got to Pot, seven years, and the next goal is... Yeah. To talk about the, the index. I like he'd, it. He'd do it. He'd, I reckon he'd do it. Um, so we're going to kick off this, uh, this episode with the reviews, as always, and we're going to start with Get Out... The, uh, the film by Jordan Peele, which uh, just came out in Australia this month, I think just hit the UK as well, or maybe last month? Uh, it came out in the UK, I want to say several months ago, but it feels oh, like okay. it's just been kind of in, in my consciousness and in pop cultural consciousness for longer than it's existed. Like that this, this film, uh, Get Out, which is uh, a, a horror film, a horror comedy, I don't know horror black comedy social comedy um has needed to exist for longer than i can say and has almost sort of been produced by the cultural unconscious or the the cultural zeitgeist but also by uh jordan peele who is a bona fide genius and Mm. has produced sort of the film of the black lives matter moment Mm. absolutely it's uh the the film about the uh about uh, a black guy coming home to, uh, or not going home, but but uh, meeting his white girlfriend's family and the sort of, I guess, yeah, the sort of guess who's coming to dinner nature of it all, but filtered through the lens of a modern horror comedy. Um, I guess, guess who's coming to dinner mixed with Wicker Man. I, I don't know if that's a common uh, reference that's been made to this film, but it really felt like Wicker Man to me with the sort of remote creepiness of a contained community uh, those, you know, really long lens shot, that unnerving sense of, of friendliness and everyone else knows what's going on except you. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, the the social commentary is what makes it such a great horror film. You know, all the, all the best horror films, or most of the best horror films, have a strong social commentary. And, um, and, and I love that sort of, his, his take on race relations where it's not, you know, what you would expect, the fear of a black man that drives the, the white villains, but the over-eagerness to be like them, to show that they're, to demonstrate that they're embracing them, you know, they're now quote unquote in vogue. And, and it's, it's this weird kind of over earnest appropriation that, that, you know, the horror takes the form of from, you know, well-meaning liberals. And I just God, the writing and the direction, but particularly the writing has such a clarity uh, of purpose and it's just such a confident 
debut film. Um, I, I really think it's it's an instant classic, and it's going to be one that's referenced years and years from now when people look back at uh, you know the the significant horror films of, of any given year or any given given decade. I I mean, one of the things that it made me think about is like how fucking stupid white American horror filmmakers are. Um, I'm going to clarify that, just not just in general, but the legacy of genocide and slavery is so foundational to American history and to the fact that the horror canon more or less just completely ignores that. I mean, like mm. the majority of American cinema when, I mean, it is foundationally horrific. You don't have to look very hard at race relations in America to find horror. Um, and when you, like, you try and make a list of films in your head, like, oh, canonical American horror films by white directors that address race head on, you're like, well, kind of Dawn of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead, maybe maybe Poltergeist. And then, like, there's other films which do it allegorically, um, obviously in the form of producing all sorts of folk devils and and bogeymen and and threats and um there's obviously like also well established sort of video canon of uh sort of horror comedy by african american filmmakers that addresses this as well and um so in the way get out is kind of letting us as the audience in on two secrets one is what is that horror film had had become bankrupt it had played itself out by never addressing this and that here is this incredible generative topic in the same way that gender is and class is for really making horror that attracts you know um critical acclaim and commercial success and it really Mm -hmm. you know i went to a sort of late second run screening on a sort of cheap matinee um and there were a lot of like groups of young people in the audience some of whom were obviously seeing the film for like the second or third time so it's not a film about like oh once you've seen it the scares you know uh, that's it you've got your you've got your popcorn um you know i think it's it is going to be one of those films like Rocky Horror Reservoir Dogs, where people will go and see it again and again in in different contexts. And um, I think it's already permeated pop culture in that way. Mm. Um, The sunken place. Huh? Like the sunken place, everyone like refers to that element of it. Like almost, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've been watching the second season of Master of None, um, Aziz Ansari's romantic non-horror comedy show but Mm. the episode that many people are discussing is one which leaves aside the the main characters of the show who are sort of wealthy new yorkers and follows the story of three different groups of working class immigrant new yorkers um uh concierge in a fancy apartment building um a young uh deaf convenience store clerk and her boyfriend and a group of cab drivers and all of them at the end of the film go to see uh, a horror film that's been being trailed and talked about all the way through the film. And there's a, a, the episode, there's a conversation about spoilers. But that's the thing. Everyone goes to see it at this late night screening. And that's where it finally comes back around to the main characters as well. So the idea is that this, this film has transcended questions of class and... Um, 
and the kind of uptown and downtown have met together and everyone is watching the screen goggle-eyed and I can't the film is called something like Nightmare Castle and it's very clearly a reference to Get Out because the film is about race the mm-hmm. imagined film which you never see um with a, a sort of racist reveal twist at the end involving Nicolas Cage so it get out is already part of the conversation um in in ways that are super exciting especially because it stars like a British actor from the ends Daniel Kaluuya who is up there to you know between him and John Boyega it's like Mm -hmm. you know Peckham has taken over Hollywood it's kind of amazing yeah yeah Wow, yeah, no, Master of None, I, I definitely have to catch up on. Um, it's super, super, like, Aziz Ansari has seen some movies this season. Like, the first episode is a pastiche of um, The Bicycle Thieves. Right. So, tolerance <laughs> levels may vary. Sure. But this idea, especially in a show on Netflix, that going to the cinema is where we still have these conversations about what matters. Mm. Um that felt really, like, going back to our previous uh, conversations, that felt really significant to me that cinema was this, the place where these communities that would only ever coincide in service roles um, with really strong, you know, social asymmetry meet, and they're all together watching the film, mm. having sharing these reactions and responses and fears and anxieties. And, yeah, I think Get Out has done that for a, a huge... A really wide audience and it's like I Am Not Your Negro has totally disproved this idea that films with um, black leads, black subjects don't sell. Mm. Like I think once and for all that is the like vampire that we have to stake. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Well there it's not the only horror film that's that we've seen recently but it's uh, one with slightly less of a social uh, message is Alien Covenant. Um, or Alien Colon Covenant. Uh, I feel that they probably could have put that in the title rather than just used the uh, the grammatical symbol. Um, yeah, I. What did you uh, What did you make of of uh, this film? And were you a fan of Prometheus at all? I'm still busy laughing at the colon um, <laughs> joke because you know the thing about the first Alien film the thing about the first Alien film, Alien person from the 80s, is that it was super visceral, right? It was a film that wasn't afraid of viscera. It would have had a colon in the title if they could have called it Alien Colon. Um, I, I think they would. And, you know, the further that Ridley Scott has got from those roots, the less visceral and more glossy and generic his mm. work has become. Um... I the main thing that I thought during Prometheus was I just want to see a version of AI where Michael Fassbender is the sex robot and there's no story, just a film called Michael Fassbender Sex Robot. So I think a lot of people would watch that. Yeah, right. And I just think that would be more interesting and relevant given the current debates about sex robots, all of which focus on the manufacture of female-bodied sex robots for male users. Um, it would be way more relevant social commentary whether it was a horror film or a porn film or like let's combine them like Bruce LeBruce does than uh (laughs) the sort of dead end that Scott has got himself into by being talked into like just churning out more alien Mm. sequels aliens is yeah 
I I don't know. Um, I so th- there is some stuff in this film that I liked, and I kind of want to get that up front before I get into rant mode. Um, I like when Prometheus came out. I noted that the original Alien films were all about motherhood, and this new series seemed interested in exploring fatherhood, and that seemed like a, enough of an interesting angle to justify its existence as sort of like a parallel. Uh, franchise within the same universe and like the first film i feel that covenant hasn't the film itself hasn't quite lived up to the promise of these themes and there are great moments in the film fassbender is fantastic but i just i don't know why we're bothering so i figure that there are two convincing reasons to make a sequel to a film you're either continuing the journey of a specific character or you're expanding your universe and if you're just remaking the first film over and over again, there is no point, and you're basically just doing variations on a theme, like like a slasher movie franchise. And, look, I don't know if this film ever had me, but if it did, it lost me at the end. Spoiler alert. Flushing an alien out through an airlock as we hold on to things. I mean, is this universe so narrow that this is the only plausible solution to the same problem of an alienism on board your ship? Uh, is it just a case of shut up and play the hits? Like, if we're just taking slightly different roads to reach the same destination, what is the point? Well, because there's only one immigration policy which you need, which is flush them out the fucking airlock. <laughs> so my problem with this film is it's like a brutally ignorant, self-unaware piece of political right, alt-right propaganda for, like, you know, as quite a lot of unthinking mainstream science fiction is, of, like, ugh, fucking disgusting others, immigration, let's get rid of them, let's blame women, um, let's get some big guns and shoot stuff, wow, science, technology, it's so cool, let's bomb the fuck out of something. It's just, a, to me, a piece of, like, militaristic hardcore, hard-cocked propaganda, you know, which feels like really the last fucking thing that we need right now. And when you put it against Get Out, which we're doing, which I think is, you know, some people would say is a little bit brutal, the values Mm. of, like, a franchise that was established in the 80s and an OTA director, it's Alien Covenant that ends up, like, worse off, no question. It's like a feather in the scales, comparatively. It's... Like, its investments in its politics are so transparent. It's in space, no one can hear you snore. Mm. And yet, at the same time, (laughs) it's just pushing this... Right? Uh, Not in a passenger sense. It's it's pushing this, you know, brutal... And repetition is part of how it does it. It's like, well, of course there's only one solution to the problem of there being an other. Like, just flush them out. Mm. Uh, And then everything will be fine. But, you know, it won't be fine. We're going to have to do it again in four years' time. Yeah. So, so, sorry, who are the, um, the aliens are the immigrants in this, in, in your metaphor, or? Yeah, a, the, well, the alien stands for a sort of general other, mm. um, whether you think of that as immigrants or the fear of reproduction, which does run through all of the films, or, um, you know, the colonised, it's, that's what I mean, it's like, it doesn't, it's, the, the first film at least had some sense of what its metaphors were doing, and this is just replicating them in a mm. in a different era and without there's no meaning it's just a, like a bunch of set pieces sure sure i uh, and sorry before we get off it's one one more rant. I actually have like 
three, four other things to complain about, but I'm just going to keep it to one because, you know, we're on a time limit. Um, Can you bullet point? Because I'm excited for this. <laughs> well, the... Okay, so at the end of the last film, there was this... At the end of Prometheus, there was a big thing of we're going to go off and find out who these people are or find out what caused blah, 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 blah. If you're going to set up a mystery, you damn well better do one of two things. You'd better A, have some answers, or B, be David Lynch. The lessons of Lost have been lost, you know. We've, we've, uh, if you're just going to make it up as you go along, I mean, that's fine because that's what storytelling is, but not if it's a prequel. You can't make things up as you go along if it's a prequel. If you're going to go backwards and say, this is how we reached the point at which we begun, you'd better know what you're doing. It had better contain surprises and it better subvert expectations. And they are to an extent. I think there is some interesting stuff in here, but not nearly enough. Um, the fact that they've so obviously given up on the question raised in Prometheus to do something new tells us there's no grand plan beyond let's make some more of these, um, which is just, it makes me not want to bother with the next film. And yes, you can quote me on that when I go along and see the next film and have the exact same reaction in a couple of years. So, uh, yeah. One of the great poster quotes of all time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I wasn't going to bother with this film, but look, here I am. But I guess they made it. What am I going to do? Uh, So, I have also managed to subject myself to the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean film, Dead Man Tell No Tales. Why have I done this? The full answer will come if anyone ever picks Gore Verbinski as their filmmaker of the month, and I'm legitimately hoping someone does at this point. Uh, But basically, you know, Gore directed the first three films, of course, and... I would say I am a fan of the potential of this franchise. Uh, The first film set up a very specific tone and a very distinctive and fun world that was back in 2003, distinct from anything we'd seen on screen in recent times. It's hard to remember being excited about a Johnny Depp performance, uh, but the original iteration of Captain Jack was revelatory in the way it presented this strange eccentric and notably effeminate lead in contrast to the overly macho action heroes we've been drowning in since the 1980s. The second film is, in my eyes, even better. It's one gigantic action set piece, brilliantly directed and massively underrated. Uh, But then something happened with the next film. They dropped the ball with an unnecessarily convoluted plot and a generally unsatisfying narrative that forgot what made the original work. The fourth was even worse, with a dull story and flat direction, and Jack had, at this point, descended into self-parody. No longer was Depp idiosyncratically interpreting a character that I'm pretty sure was written as this sort of roguishly Han Solo type on the page. The script was now falling over itself to write his idiosyncrasies into the story, crowbarring in self-conscious trailer moments and generally rendering Depp and his interpretation irrelevant to the process. However, my love of the first two films keeps me optimistic, and I had to see what the fifth film, uh, Dead Men Told No Tales, billed unconvincingly as the final in the series, would do. And I think this is the Goldilocks of the franchise. It's nowhere near as good as the first two, and nowhere near as bad as the next two. The screenplay tries to do way too many things at once, uh, ticking a whole bunch of boxes instead of telling a story. And the characterization of Captain Jack is worse than it's ever been. However, the direction from Joachim Ronning and Espen Sandberg, I'm so sorry about that pronunciation, 
uh, recalls Verbinski at his best. And they really put their backs into making the action set pieces uh, comprehensible and thrilling. There are genuinely great moments nestled among the barely serviceable narrative, and it's just enough to give me hope that if and when they decide to reboot the series with a sixth entry, should they give it to a filmmaker with something interesting to say and a fresh take on the material, there's just enough juice left in this world that they've built to justify revisiting it. Thank you for listening to that rant, and uh, to get back to the films that we've both seen, uh, one that just came out in the UK, and speaking of the Netflix conversation we had last month, it's interesting because I think this uh, just came out in UK cinemas, but it's just hit Netflix in Australia, and that is the film Mindhorn. Am I right about that? Mindhorn. Mindhorn. Um, yes. Okay, so this is the... You are right about that. This is the film that stars and is written by, or co-written by, uh, Julian Barrett from The Mighty Boosh. Uh, kind of a comedy about a, uh, uh, an actor who used to play a detective on TV, on a short-run TV show, who is called back when the suspect in a murder believes that Mindhorn is real and will only speak to Mindhorn. So the police bring back this washed-up actor to sort of uh, help out with the case. And... Uh, and that's basically the setup. It's an excellent summary of a quite bewildering film. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> not in terms of, you know, it's not like a high concept sort of Ridley Scott type film, but it's amazing to me that anyone who didn't grow up in the UK in the 80s can make sense of this film at all. It's really a protracted joke about the shitness of British television uh, in the 80s. It's lack of ambition. It's parochialism. Um, and its obsession with, like, men who wore leather jackets and drove fast cars, mm. even though they had, like, the sex appeal of used tea bags. So the film sets itself a bit of a challenge to get over having uh, a failed, washed-up actor who played a very unattractive TV detective as its hero. Um, and I feel that's a problem it never surmounts. So... Um, in the same way as I made up a fantasy film called Laura while I was watching Logan, um, I have, was watching really a film called Angela while supposedly watching a film called Mindhorn. There's a lot less of that film than there was of Laura in Logan. Angela um, was Mindhorn's love interest in the original uh, TV show in which she had very little to do other than pout and have wavy hair. Um, but the producer of the film has scored an enormous coup in casting Australia's own Essie Davis uh, as Patricia Deville, that actress who played Angela and is now um, a local journalist on the Isle of Man where the murder has been committed and where the show was shot and Mindhorn returns to. And hidden inside this film which is really blatantly about like it's sort of like a tv detective train spotting too like there's a lot of scenes of like middle-aged men behaving badly and describing women disgustingly there's a fascinating film about the um sort of the real detective who is Patricia DeVille and the suspect that she, the real suspect she hunts down, DC Baines, who is played by Andrea Riseborough in the hottest set of bike leathers that has ever graced the British uh, cinema screen. And the fascinating relationship between these two women stranded in this world mm. um, of ridiculous teak tanned, past their prime, wind cheater wearing men 
Um, there's a film that I wanted to see, and it's on screen for about four and a half minutes. So I had to have a very active imagination. I feel like this is a, this, this is a, this is definitely a theme uh, that we we uh, we we have with uh, month by month. Uh, the the imagined... so he has to make up films where there are roles for women <laughs> in them while watching mainstream cinema. Pretty yeah, much, yeah. It's a it's a living project. <laughs> well, yeah. I look. Uh, the other day, I caught a few minutes of the Jackie Chan film, Mister Nice Guy. This does relate. This does relate to Mind Horn. I'm. I'll just. I just need to take a circuitous route to get there. Um, okay. It's it's not good. Like it's it's not a good Jackie Chan film. Uh, but I remember rushing along to see it in cinema because it was filmed in Melbourne, and I was off at university and feeling homesick for Melbourne. And I remember the intensely surreal feeling of watching film locations from somewhere I recognised. I think this is a feeling that we probably have more of in Australia than anywhere else because we almost never have. I mean, we do have films shot here. I mean, Alien. Covenant was shot in Australia, but they always try to make it not look like Australia. I still remember everyone in the audience bursting out laughing at the Ghost Rider trailer because it was shot in Melbourne and that was just ridiculous to us. Um, so during my brief stint in the UK, I went to the Isle of Man for a few days and I visited nearly every corner of that place. Um, mind because it's tiny. It, it is tiny and it was uh, there was something quite appealing about the fact that I could explore every inch of, uh, of a place in the space of a short trip. Uh, I like the comprehensiveness of that. And, you know, Mindhorn being set on the Isle of Man, I, I found it beyond strange seeing places that I only knew from my memory. I haven't seen these places in films before. I've, I just yeah. visited there. And so, you know, Julian Barrett walks down a street. I walked down. He jumps over a fence, literally, that I jumped over. Um, nearly, you are Mindhorn. I am Mindhorn. Uh, <laughs> nearly every location Twist. was just somewhere I'd, I'd been, and I almost couldn't concentrate on the film because of that. I still really liked it. I, I laughed at a lot of it because I do think it's quite funny. But I had to sort of uh, confess this very subjective uh, mm. viewing experience because... It, I almost could not uh, could not absorb the film in any other way than through this prism of memory. So, yeah, I had a very weird reaction uh, to Mindhorn, but I, I, I would recommend it, um, if, especially if you're a fan of The Mighty Boosh, if you're a fan of Barrett's other work, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, and if you have Netflix, you can do it right this second in parts of the world, not all of them. Uh, so... This is actually where you leave us, Sophie, uh, because you are off to uh, to South Korea. Uh, That's right. And uh, what are you what are you up to there? It's a top secret diplomatic mission. Of course. Uh, no, I'm going to the Seoul International Women's Film Festival um, uh, to talk about. Um, feminist cinema, and I will be doing a Q&A with Lizzie Borden and Ulla Steckel, um, which I'm pretty darn excited about. So that's Lizzie Borden, director of the legendary science fiction film Born in Flames, um, and generally hanging out and seeing their program of feminist science fiction and eating some awesome food. So awesome. Uh, what, that's my and, plan. And what dates is that? What date is that happening? Oh, so for listeners in or near Seoul, the festival is running from the 1st to the 7th of June at cinemas across the downtown. Excellent. So definitely go and check that out. Have an amazing trip. And, uh, Thanks. Yeah, bring me back something, even though I'm probably cl- 
closer to South Korea Way right now. closer to Seoul than I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring you back something. No, that doesn't work. Okay. That's right. Yeah, I'll... bring me back something from Neil Marshall Land. Okay, yeah. I'll tell him you said hi. Bye. As I mentioned earlier, it is our seventh anniversary, so I hope you'll permit us a moment of indulgence that's just slightly different to the seven years' worth of indulgent moments we've broadcast thus far, because we are marking this occasion with something we've never done on the show before. We are now joined by a guest who has also been the subject of our Filmmaker of the Month spot. Joining us all the way from Vancouver is director Neil Marshall. Neil, welcome. Hi. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. How are you going? Uh, I'm all right, but I'm not in Vancouver. I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, really? I, I, I switched on you at the last ah, minute. Damn it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a typical Neil Marshall twist right there. Yeah. So we literally talked about your career and films this time last month. And by the way, Sophie and Scott both said to say hi. I understand you've listened to the episode. So I have to ask off the bat, how much did we get wrong? Um, I don't think you got anything wrong that I can think of. I mean, it was just, obviously it's like slightly surreal listening to a podcast about yourself, but, um, but I've known Scott for many, many years now. Uh, we met, uh, for the first time, God, I can't remember, certainly over 10 years ago on a very drunken night in London. Um, and have remained sort of good friends ever since. And, uh, so it was, it was very nice of him to do that for sure. To, you know, of all he could have picked. Um, you know, I guess I guess in the world of movies, my 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 canon is fairly small. You know, having only done four features so far, and a, a portion of a fifth feature, Tales of Halloween. Um, so yeah, just it was just really nice to for that to happen. It makes me very kind of proud of the work that I do. That it has some kind of impact and effect on people that they want to talk about it, and it also kind of amuses the. the, the Hell out of me! That uh, <laughs> uh, certainly, as far as the descent's concerned, some of the, the fascinating discussions that surround that movie and all the, you know, what what could it mean? What does it mean? All this kind of stuff is I, I love all that stuff. Great, yeah, because it's it's very easy to, you know, talk about films, talk about filmmakers, and not really think that that they could be listening in. It's uh, it's certainly a trap I've fallen into many times before. I, I once criticised a, a film and had the filmmaker email me and go. Yeah, actually, I agree with you uh, on that. I, I did get the middle part of that film wrong, which was a, a very strange experience. But <laughs> for you, um, how I know that all filmmakers vary the amount of reaction they consume. I'm sure there are some who have Google alerts up and others who just shut off the internet completely when a new film comes out. Do you engage with the the criticisms or, or well, I guess that's got negative connotations, but the reactions and responses to your work? Uh, I've certainly stopped engaging with it, um, and I don't actively seek it out so much now, like the responses to my work. I mean, it's, it's nice sometimes if you get some really great feedback. Obviously, that's really encouraging, and, you know, that's, that's lovely to read, but then it's just as heartbreaking to read those who, you know, don't like stuff. Mm. And it's always the one, it's always the negative stuff that sticks in your mind, you know, the most. Sure. But uh, for whatever reason, you can have 10 good reviews and one bad one, you'll only remember the bad one. Um, but I think after my experience on Doomsday, I kind of feel sort of not, uh, is the word bulletproof? I mean, yeah, kind of bulletproof. I like my armor got, a, my, my, you know, my armor and my skin got certainly a lot thicker after that experience of yeah. getting a real creaming from critics, uh, and from an awful lot of haters out there. Um, and then I've spent the years since keep on meeting people who love the movie and are happy to tell me so. And, and, you know, that, that 
that makes a big difference to me. But as far as like online stuff, it's just, you know, there's just, there's lovers and there's haters and that's all there is and it's never going to change. Sure. Uh, we, we had, uh, when we announced that you're on the show, it was, uh, the announcement came and we did, we couldn't plan this cause you hadn't told us this obviously, but, uh, we, the announcement came the day after it was announced that you were directing a new Hellboy film. And the response that we got from everyone was, could you please ask him about the Hellboy film? Uh, and of course, you know, we know that you're not going to give anything up at this stage cause it's so early, but it was interesting seeing the variety of responses, um, because there are people who are so attached to the to the last set of films, and then there are people who are excited about the the uh, marriage of you know filmmaker to material. What's it like being at the center of a storm like that when you haven't <laughs> shot a frame yet? Um, well, that, for that, it's like the only thing I can do is try and ignore it and just make the best film possible. Uh, because yeah, it, yeah, you, I, I am aware that I have to kind of please the the you know the comics fans, the Mignola fans. Uh, I got to appease the uh, Del Toro fans, uh, and you know somehow keep everybody happy, and uh, or, or at least give them some something new. Um, and then you know at the bottom line is I've just got to make a really great movie no matter what. So um, yeah, all, all you can do is concentrate on the work. It's like you, there's not much else you can do. If you think about it too much, it'll just drive you nuts. Mm. Do you do you think of films like this? in the context of, of your canon? Like, uh, are you sort of, like, playing a long game here where you've got a, a career arc? Because, you know, we tend to, when we watch all these films, the filmmakers we talk about chronologically, we tend to read in arcs ourselves. You'll, you'll, you'll hear me do that in a moment with the filmmaker you've picked. Um, but do, is there is there any thought in the back of your head, like, I've been, you know, it's time to make a new movie or it's time to make this type of movie or anything like that? Um, not so much. Um... You know, I think if I had a career plan right at the start, it was just to carry on making movies. Uh, and obviously the, the original point when that became quite difficult, and then by chance I kind of fell into the television world with Game of Thrones, uh, which was kind of uh, off, right off the back of a movie in a way. There was, there was a connection between my last movie and my first episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, and then I've kind of started doing TV and started to really enjoy that and getting offered some pretty cool stuff uh, along the way, which is sort of like a, a bigger variety of, of subject matter and genres than I've ever got to do as a filmmaker. Um, but obviously never wanting to give up the dream of keeping on making films. And so when Hellboy presented itself, it was like, okay, great. This is something that I'd really like to do and do well. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a change of direction, but at the same time it's not because it's going to be, a, it's a genre film and I've always kind of worked with a genre. Um, so, you know, it's not an arc, it's a kind of winding path. It's not, it's not like an up and down path or, or you know, it doesn't feel that way anyway. It just feels like, I don't know what's around the next corner and never do. I think, I think you can only really like look at it as an arc in, in, you know, in retrospect, like hopefully if I manage to keep working for another 10, 20 years, then, then maybe there'll, there'll be some kind of arc. Who could say? Who could say? Well, I'm certainly looking forward to, to seeing the next uh, 10, 20, 30 years worth of films and uh, Me prob- too. probably talking about them <laughs> on a podcast. Oh, that'd be nice. So, Neil, please let us know which filmmaker have you selected as your filmmaker of the month? Uh, I have selected uh, a very personal favourite of mine, uh, Joe Dante. Um, 
it, it, also, it seems very strange to me now that um, you know, growing up in Newcastle, you know, as a kid, with you know, Newcastle is not like the centre of the film industry in the UK. So um, the idea that I would ever get to work in this business at all, uh, when I was going to the cinema every weekend to see movies like you know Gremlins and Explorers and Inner Space and The Birds, uh, that one day I should not only get to work in the business, but that I should be able to like count. Uh, Joe Dante amongst my friends and, you know, be able to go and talk to him about stuff and things like that is, is I still find it quite, you have to pinch yourself every once in a while. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are these people that, whose work you've like loved and admired over the years. Uh, then you get to meet them and you get to talk to them and, and, you know, it's like, wow, okay, this is, this is living the dream if, if, if nothing is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I was, hugely inspired and certainly I mean it shows in my first movie like I was hugely inspired by Joe's work and you know specifically the first of his movies that I actually saw you know, like if I, if I I didn't watch them all in, in order that he made them but I certainly I started with The Howling Right so did you see that in the cinema or was that a, a, a video? No I was I was too young to see it in the cinema mm. Um so- so I, I saw it at the you know the advent of um, VHS, right? Um, which I guess it must be one of the very first films I saw. It was a, you know my friend invited me around. He, he had he had the first sort of VHS player in in the um, in the neighbourhood, and and I went around to his, and he, he had a couple of films to show me, and one of them was The Howling, and uh, you know it absolutely scared the life out of me. Yeah. It's it's such a weird film. I hadn't actually seen it before. I only knew it by reputation. And for for a film that's so often cited as one of the great sort of, you know, uh, uh, werewolf films of that era, I, I wasn't anticipating how incredibly strange it was. It is it is a very strange film, I and mean, it was it was marketed in a very strange way as well because it was they really tried to hide the fact that it was a werewolf movie. Mm. Um, in the marketing, you know, they had the kind of screaming woman. I think they were really trying to pitch it as being another slasher movie, and um, you know, it, hiding the fact it was uh, the werewolf in it somehow. In the in the UK, the poster was slightly different and did have a werewolf on it, mm. but um, in the US, it was like a, I don't know, it was it was very odd. Um, you know, they were selling the Eddie Quist factor more than than werewolves, uh, but I, you know, I totally responded to the werewolf element and. Um, you know, absolutely loved that, and loved the, the, in particular the design of the werewolves. It was sort of seriously impressive, mm. and the way that they worked in that movie. But then, you know, I think the first time I saw it, and it was kind of like when I saw American Werewolf in London the first time. Uh, I don't know how old I was; I would have been eleven, something like eleven or twelve. Um, I really didn't see it as a comedy in any way. I just saw it as a horror movie, and I was terrified. Um, and the Howling has got some great scary sequences in it. And it was only on later viewings, as a sort of you know, heading into teenage years further, was was to see okay, because then I understood you know like who Roger Corman was, or you know what the in jokes to the other werewolf movies are, or who Dick Miller was, and all this kind of stuff. I started to understand that, and then it opened up that movie is just, is so full of references and iconography, and, and you know, you know, once once you start to understand the references and the in jokes in, in the Howling, uh, you know, it, it it makes you appreciate the movie on a whole other level. Mm. Um, it, that it is, yes, it's definitely scary and it plays the scares straight, but it's also really funny. Um, has some great jokes in it, 
and so much of that, you know, John Sayles' really smart script um, is a big deal. So, yeah. So, was, and that, that clearly affected my first movie, which was a werewolf movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see, uh, see the, it's DNA in there. At what point did you, like, notice Joe Dante's name and think, I got to check out everything this guy made? Uh, well, I definitely noticed it on the howling. Of understanding, you know, because at that point, at that point, I was really starting to get into uh, movies. I, I, you know, like a year before, I'd seen Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time, and the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark on TV. And it was pretty much then that I decided that I wanted to make movies for a living. Um, and so from that point on, my teenage years were just spent being a sponge, just like soaking up everything and anything to do with movies and everything I had access to. And so because you know I loved The Howling so much, I was very interested in who directed it and seeing what else they'd done. So well, that, you know, that led me to discover Piranha. Um, you know, having also seen Jaws, uh, was like, okay, now I appreciate that and appreciate it on a different level. Um, so, you know, and then that, that, of course, led me to The Twilight Zone and then, you know, and then basically start following that director's work. And so you look out for that. Once, you, once you, you know the name, you like their stuff and you start looking out for the next film that comes along. Mm. And at that time, we were getting like a Joe Dante movie like every year. So for a good few years. And, um, yeah, it was easy to look forward to them. Yeah, he had a, he had a really great run. Um particularly from like Gremlins in 84 and then Explorers in 85 and Inner Space and The Burbs. There was a, a really consistent uh, run of, uh, of some really fantastic work. I know Inner Space was my first Dante and for some reason it was one of those films that uh, used to play on Australian television a lot and we would watch it every time it, it came on and... You know, even, even like I, I'd heard of the Fantastic Voyage. I don't know if I'd quite seen it at that at that age when I saw Inner Space, but I was aware that I was watching something that was taking a familiar trope and doing something fun with it, like not not abandoning the science fiction or fantasy elements in in service of the comedy, but sort of using all of it. Uh, and yeah, Inner, Inner Space was one of my favorites. Uh, absolutely, I love Inner Space. I mean, so, so many of like his movies have inspired mine and somewhat inspired my work in some way or other. And like uh, when I was making the timeless um, uh, pilot last year, the year before last, uh, I was heavily inspired by inner space as far as the, the, the laboratory and the time machine, uh, the design of the time machine, the laboratory itself, the things like having all this stuff coming over a PA system while the launch was taking place, things like that mm. made it feel kind of round realistic. And so much of that I got from inner space. Um, you know, I think that that aspect of it, it's a great adventure film. It's, uh, but it's also very funny. Mm. And I, I think that's like, for me is what works about Dante's work from pretty much everything he's done is that he has this really, um, bleak gallows sense of humor, which is very much my sense of humor. Um, and how he can find these interesting characters and interesting situations and, you know, make jokes when, you know, a werewolf movie or gremlins or explorers or in space, it's just like everything is, has a humorous edge to it. And, um, and I, and I love that. I love that. The darkness of tomes, uh, specifically in like, um, the howling, but also in the burbs. I mean, I, if I had to name like my favorite Joe Dante movie, it's probably the burbs. There's just some, um, it never fails to amuse me. Never fails. 
I uh, yeah, it, it's I saw that for the first time a couple of years ago and, and rewatched it for the for the show and. I, it really it really knocked me over because you know I think of, of Dante as someone who loves humor, loves fantasy, loves silliness, but yeah, I think you know the Burbs is as satirical a film about suburban Americana as something like Blue Velvet or Lawn Dogs. Um, Absolutely, it's, it's so sharp and it's so cynical, and like I and I, I'm convinced that I mean Corey Feldman character is obviously the audience point of view character watching the street but i like the idea that that's how dante sees himself that sort of wry teenage meathead in the middle of americana who's slightly above it all but has a genuine love for everything that's going on yeah and i think also at the time when i saw it i mean in 1989 when it came out um you know i was still living in newcastle in the suburbs of newcastle and the suburbs i knew were very different from those suburbs um, so I, it would, it would felt like a, you know, it was a very distant concept, really what, what I was seeing. I kind of, I got the general idea, but you know, I couldn't relate to it directly, but now, um, you know, I'm living on a street in LA and it, it's, a, it's just like the birds. It's like, okay, now I get it. That's what it was. And it's like, okay, this week even got those kind of characters, you know, moving around in once in a while. Um, so, but that didn't, you know, it didn't stop my appreciation of the movie, just mm. the fact that. A different kind of suburbia, really, mm. that, I, that I was living in at the time. I think that if he had not made Looney Tunes back in action in 2003, I would still have uh, noted Looney Tunes as a huge influence on him. I'm, I'm convinced that, that that's you know as big a part of his DNA as, as anything else, because his films all feel like they are influenced by the Bugs and Daffy cartoons, uh, like his films feel like those live action versions, and you know, even Gremlins Two begins with a Bugs and Daffy moment, yeah. and gives us a film that is almost a parody of the first film. Like Phoebe Cates launches into a speech mocking her Christmas trauma speech from the first film by claiming to have a trauma associated with Lincoln's birthday. There's Leonard Moulton reviewing the first Gremlins film and trashing it before being attacked by Gremlins himself. Uh, the film stops when Gremlins literally take over the cinema. We are theoretically watching the film in. Uh, there's an amazing moment where Robert Picardo, who had been uh, the lady gremlin, had been trying to seduce him for the whole film, basically adopts an expression that basically says, "Sure, what the hell?" Uh, and that gremlin is kind of this grotesque, lipstick-clad figure, reminiscent of when Bugs Bunny would dress up as a lady rabbit. And I think all of that stems from the anarchy of the Looney Tunes cartoons that he clearly grew up on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's clear from uh, watching. Um, Gremlins 2 for sure but it's also clear from watching uh, his segment you know It's a Good Life from Twilight Zone mm. um, which you know has kind of like Tasmanian Devil character in it and stuff like that I mean it's very heavily um, influenced by that kind of thing as well mm. um, I think that, that started to come through Twilight Zone definitely came through in, in like Gremlins and Explorers uh, and the Burbs a bit but certainly Gremlins 2 and then Matinee and clearly those influences on him um, play out in some way or other. Mm. Yeah, mat- matinee was an interesting one. I hadn't. Uh, that's one that doesn't get talked about as much as these others, and is so, it's a wonderful movie. But uh, and I think it doesn't get. You know, it's not. You know, it's not like in your face like Gremlins or something like that. It's actually. Quite, it's a very subtle movie. It's got really beautiful performances, well written, beautifully directed. But it's it's like a little a little personal movie. If he's got a little personal movie in his in his. Um, you know, back catalogue, that's, I feel that that is it. Mm. Um, and it, it plays out that way. 
Um, and it has some beautiful touches to it. But uh, of course, it has Mant, you know, and yeah. you can't go wrong with Mant. <laughs> the film within a film, yeah, so good, so good. Uh, in in ninety seven, uh, he made a film which which again I've only just seen for the first time, uh, the Second Civil War, which is way way too relevant for two thousand and seventeen. You know, twenty years ago, he made a film which feels like it's about now. It's you know, it's based around xenophobia and mistrust of the media and states versus federal and orphaned Middle Eastern kids being used as pawns. A profoundly stupid president. Uh, you know, it's it. It's. Uh, I, I'm usually resistant to the thing where you look at an old film and you go, "Oh, look at how prescient it was." Um, but yeah, no, I, I couldn't resist it with this film. It's just so on the nose about um about what's happening now. Yeah, he uh, he called it pretty early, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, uh, and and there are and there are so many. Um, so just just jumping around my my notes here because it's it's. I was really taken with how with his social commentary. And uh, and how much he slips that in under all the comedy and the high concept stuff, like even Small Soldiers, which is ostensibly a you know live action Toy Story type film aimed at kids. It's it's got such a an incisive view of the world and of war. Um, it's got you know lines like I think World War Two was my favorite war. Uh-huh. One of my favorite Phil Hartman yeah. lines of all time. Uh, Militant Barbies yelling. Run! It's a baton! It's a baton! I mean, this film is just uh, is 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 massively underrated. It's got some one and barbed comments in it as well, but it you know it takes a dig at you know corporations and consumerism. Mm. Um, you know the notion of these you know, of toy soldiers and and you know uh, expendable you know people or things. Um, no, he 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 makes some very very pointed comments with that movie it's i think it's i think it's hugely underrated i think unfortunately it kind of it gets compared to the likes of gremlins or something else something else that has like little creatures running around um but it's a very very different film mm. um and and tells a different story and it's it's and the effects are fantastic as well and then uh, you're getting getting things like you know the, the original dirty dozen or you know like that to play the voices of the soldiers and things which is inspired but you know so again it's just like so much of his work uh, demonstrates his complete love of movies, and um, you know that certainly comes out. Like, I, I figure I have a decent kind of knowledge of movies, but I don't know a fraction of what he knows. Mm. And he's he seems to see everything. I mean, maybe from a slightly different uh, generation. Like, you know, he he is a huge fan and an encyclopedic knowledge of like movies of the forties and fifties and sixties. And seventies, and I guess my my knowledge starts at the kind of eighties. <laughs> so on, on, uh, oh, I, I, you know, I know bits and pieces about movies before that, but he seems to know everything and every movie, and I think he's seen every movie as well. And that you would know, not such surprise passion me. Yeah. For him. yeah, no, it's, it's a passion for him, and it comes out in his work constantly. Mm. You know, um, I think I think every frame of his movies just reeks of this guy loves cinema. This guy loves you know that world and those stories. Um, yeah, and you know, and it's and it's it is that thing of passing on the baton a bit. Uh, when I did my tales of Halloween segment, the um, little nod and a wink to kind of gremlins, you know, said it's Halloween, but it's like about killer pumpkins and uh, you know, biting people's heads off. It's like a mischievous kind of thing. It's got a little cackle to it. You know, there's definitely a gremlins kind of element in there. Um, 
and, and as such, you know, I was lucky enough to get Joe to do a cameo appearance in it as a kind of mad scientist. I was like, I needed somebody to play a mad scientist, and it just seemed screamingly obvious to me that if you know, if he wasn't a film director, I'm sure Joe would be a mad scientist, <laughs> and uh, he, he kind of looked. So. <laughs> um, so it was great to, to get in there and kind of take it sort of full circle. Is is that where you met him? Because I noticed that uh, you know uh, he, he's launched Trailers from Hell, the web series, which is. Yeah, it feels very much yeah. in, in the vein of what we're trying to do here. Uh, and I noticed you've been involved in, in, in that. Did you meet him there or was it when you made... Uh... No, I, I can't remember the first. I think I met him the first time probably at one of the Masters of Horror dinners that uh, Mick Garris hosts in, uh, or hosted for a while up in, in, in LA. Um, and I was lucky enough to get invited along to those. And I may have met him there. Uh, we were at a film festival in Spain together and managed to hang out quite a bit there for a while. And, you know, just the kind of the friendship grew. And then, yes, I did, I did a couple of the, the trailers from hell, uh, you know, the, 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 those trailer commentaries um, for them. And so, you know, it just seemed like a natural thing to, like, try and get them as a cameo in, in my film, <laughs> mm-hmm. since it was that kind of thing, since it was such a love letter to, you know, genre anyway, with terms of Halloween. And we were getting a lot of crazy cameos in there, so... It just it just worked out very nicely. Has he ever shown you the movie orgy? Sorry, has he ever shown? He has you the not. Mo- no, 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 he hasn't. Because that uh, um, that screened at the. I think I think he was out here a few years ago and and played it at the Melbourne Film Festival in the in the middle of the night, uh, and it was an in- endurance test amongst uh, Melbourne cinephiles. You know who made it all the way through <laughs> in in a good way. Uh, they, no, they, they started at like midnight or something. Yeah, yeah. I'll ask him about that. <laughs> I love it when, when actors uh, and directors have relationships that, you know, span entire careers. He brings a lot of people back, um, but I've noticed uh, he seems to have a, a particular um, uh, affinity for Dick Miller and Robert Picardo, both of whom turn up in almost every single yeah, one of his films. Um, have, I, don't, I don't suppose you've talked to him about that or anything, but do you know if, there's, uh, if they, like, all went to school together or... No, I think it's well. I don't know about the Picardo thing. Certainly, the Dick Miller thing is through the Coleman connection of uh, working Coleman movies. Mm. Um, but Picardo, I don't know. It's like because the character that you know, the, the first time that I recall seeing him is in The Howling, and he's very different from everything that he's pretty much played since. You know, he plays this really kind of dark, twisted, you know, killer in that movie, scary in that movie. But then. From from then on, pretty much anything I've seen him in, he's like he's hilarious. You know, he's this the rubber face uh, chameleon. You know, who who can play anything, but tends to play for laughs, whereas he didn't play the Howling for laughs at all. Um, so well, except for when he pulled the fragment of his brain out and said he's a piece of my mind, but he played that straight. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I also wanted to give a quick shout out to. Jerry Goldsmith's scores for Dante because that's another really great collaboration. Goldsmith really gets what Dante is going for tonally, and I love that he is so willing to take the score that he composed for Patton, uh, which was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, and repurpose it not once but twice. So he he wrote a very distinctive theme uh, for that George C. Scott uh, Patton biopic, but he uses it to make fun of Bruce Dern's militaristic suburbanite in The Burbs, and then again for Tommy Lee Jones's action figure come to life in Small Soldiers. There aren't many artists willing to undercut their own serious work 
uh, for a comedy to sort of parody themselves. And I've got to say that I actually associate the theme more with the burbs than I do with Patton. In Southeast Asia, we call this type of thing bad karma. I love that he's still that he's still making films. You know, I get a little uh, I get a little nervous when we talk about great filmmakers from like you know the seventies or eighties because sometimes there's a noticeable dip as we get to the modern era. But uh, and I certainly had that worry when I popped on uh, the hole from two thousand and eleven and was so happy because it's so I I think it's kind of brilliant. It's it feels like a horror film made for kids and which sounds sounds like the hardest thing to ever pull off. And it's tonally perfect. Like it, it, it seems like a really difficult magic trick. And the horror effects like aren't too gruesome. They're not too full on, but they are really creepy. He does this sort of stop motion with humans, uh, and I know the term of that for that is pixelation. I remember that because I got it wrong on a test at film school years ago. So pixelation with an e. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, uh, the hole in uh, 2011 was uh, was fantastic. It really, you know, I, I would rate that up there with some of his best. The hole is very underrated. Um, I think it was maybe like oversold as being a 3D thing at the time, which um, doesn't necessarily is, is it, it has a lot more going for it than the 3D element. Mm. But it was kind of early in the days of 3D, and so they really pushed it as the whole 3D and. You know, that was the selling point. But actually, the selling point is is that it's a really interesting little movie. Um, and I'm trying to remember when I saw The Hole for the first time. I'm sure it was at a film festival. But um, I could do with watching it again because it, it is very underrated. And I did, I, I did enjoy it, for sure. Um, you know, it's, I say, it was, just, it was just pushed too heavily on the 3D angle. And that's not really the best thing about it at all. Mm. So do you, know if he's got, do you know if he's got anything else on the boil? Like, do you, do you know if there are any... Joe Dante films are coming down the pipeline? Uh, I believe he has several projects on the ball. I've no idea what stage they're in, but you know, just as far as I'm concerned, it's like, like any, any new Joe Dante movie is something I want to see. So, um, I, 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 uh, I have reason to believe he's doing, uh, like a biography of Roger Coleman or something, but I oh, wow. could be wrong about that. I know that that's been for a while. Um, yeah, it's a project called Kaleidoscope Mind. But um, I don't I don't know what state that's in. But uh, yeah, like I say, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's got Joe's name on the credits. I want to see it. Absolutely, uh, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. And we'll keep our eyes peeled for Hellboy. Ah, I, would, I wish I could see more, but uh, sadly I can't. <laughs> <laughs> no worries at all. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Yeah, it's not bad.